The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicfliersnz.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. On the 27th of November 2020, Malcolm Campbell passed away. Malcolm was a well-known Waikato aviation entrepreneur and airline owner and pilot. He'd put a lot into the airline industry over the years, founding and owning Eagle Air, and he was also involved in flying training, maintenance and all sorts of other things. Back in 2013, I had the privilege to sit down with Malcolm and record his memories, and I'm releasing them here as a tribute to his legacy. Here's that interview. I'll, I'll start off by asking uh, your full name. Yeah, Malcolm Graham Campbell. And your uh, date of birth and place of uh, birth. 5th of October, 1934, at Pahiatua. Oh yes, yep. Yeah. Okay, and um, so you grew up in Pahiatua? No, we shifted uh, from Pahiatua while I was just a baby to Palmerston North, and uh, I grew up in Palmerston North. Right, okay. Uh, I guess growing up, through the late 30s and uh, into the 1940s, it must have been quite an interesting time with the um, aviation then. Uh, well, at the time as I grew up, of course, it was the uh, Second World War that was, I suppose, the greatest um, uh, event. Yes, yep. And um, 
we didn't know much. I didn't know much about it, of course, but we always thought the enemy was just over the hill <laughs> rather than in the distance somewhere. But we lived adjacent to the Hamilton, uh, the Palmerston North Airport, and of course, as a child, I used to watch the aeroplanes going over, the old fabric ones, and then the, eventually the uh, Electras and the Lodestars, and I used to think that they were pretty marvellous. Right, right. They had the Hawker Hines there, didn't they, at Milson? Yeah, I don't, don't ever recall any Hawker Hines, okay. but as a child, we used to, or when I was about 10 or 11, we used to go to the Milson Airport where they had a whole lot of mosquito bombers there after the... Um, end of the war yes and uh, we used to play with those and quite often get chased away but we acquired <laughs> a few bits and pieces off the aeroplanes oh right okay and i guess that created my first interest in flying i went to the queen elizabeth college in palmerston north yep. and while we were there while i was there i got a flying scholarship at the end of the war they felt that they should take a lot of young fellows and train them up in case there was another war and yep. um so by the, at the time, uh, by the time I was 15, I'd got the scholarship and I had to wait until I was 16 before I could uh, start flying. And that was a 30-hour flying scholarship at the local aero club. Right. The instructor there was a guy named uh, Cyril Plumtree. Okay. And he was quite a character from the Second World War. He'd done a bit of flying and a tall, red-headed guy with a big moustache as was the, the current sort of uh, thing for pilots. Yes, yes. Ruddy complexion and uh, very loud voice. I well remember him when we'd be fly, taking a flying lesson and uh, he'd say, uh, Campbell, have you ever been fishing? Yes, sir. Have you ever caught a fish? Yes, sir. By Christ, you bloody will surprise me. <laughs> so I had lots of sayings like this that I used to stack away and think, well, one day maybe I would teach somebody to fly <laughs> and uh, be able to use these things. Right, right. Um, from the flying scholarship, um, I carried on at school, of course, at that stage, yeah. and then had to go into the compulsory military training at uh, Tyree Airport in Dunedin. We, I continued my flying there, and that was in the early 50s, or mid-50s. So you're now a pilot in the Air Force under CMT? Yeah, under the compulsory military training. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what sort of duties were you doing um, at Tyree, then? What's, what kind of flying were you doing? Well, it was the initial training school, um, and it was all done in Tiger Moths at yes. that stage. Uh, there were a few Harvards around and um, um, a couple of Mustangs flying. Right. We didn't get an opportunity to fly in the Mustangs, but we did do a bit of flying in the Harvards okay. time. I probably would have chosen a career in aviation if it was possible, but at, at that time, quite rightly so, the aviation industry in New Zealand was dominated by ex World War II pilots, yep. and very little opportunity existed for somebody who hadn't had a background in the military right. um, to get a job. So uh, my initial job was working for uh, Burroughs Limited, who were a computer company then. Okay. I studied a bit of accountancy. Um, I didn't get qualified in accountancy, 
but I was always keen to um, get into that field perhaps and specialise with burrows. However, I suppose as things developed, I then got a bit more interest in aviation as jobs became available and I started top dressing with James Aviation. Right, right. So where was this at? Um, by the time I'd shifted up to Hamilton. Okay, yep. 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 And I did training there <coughs> at Rotorua, uh, training with James at Rotorua and then was based at um, Taupo, Tikawiti and around the countryside. Right. But at that time I got married and I had a young family and uh, was felt that it was, might be a bit risky. Yeah. I had an accident in a top dressing aircraft where I overshot a top dressing strip with a tailwind. And um, so I looked at something which was a bit more stable and started um, instructing. Okay, okay. Well, just before we move on to the instructing, can you tell me a little bit about the top dressing? Were you in Beavers or...? No, it was only in a, a Fletcher top dressing aircraft. Oh, yeah. It's the only one I flew top dressing. Yeah. Um, up till that time, most of the flying had been done in Tiger Moths, of course, because that was the basic training in New, trainer in New Zealand, although the Piper Cubs and Cessnas and that were coming into being. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. And how long were you actually top dressing for before you gave it up? I was top dressing for about 18 months. Okay, yep. And uh, oh, it was an enjoyable time and quite interesting, of course. Yes, and low flying and yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and so then you moved on to instructing. Yep, I got an instructor's rating with uh, Ian Palmer at Rotorua Aero Club. Yep. And worked at uh, Rotorua and Taupo for a while, just part time. An opportunity came up at the Waikato Aero Club, and um, I took up an instructor's position there. Right, right. I continued with the uh, Waikato Aero Club for seven years, six or seven years, but I could see that there was not a huge amount of future in working for a club, yep. so I decided that I'd start my own flying school. So in 1969, my wife and I collected everything we had, and yep put it on the line, bought an aircraft, and started the school. The aircraft we bought was the Air Tourer, which was uh, owned by Cliff Tate at the time and just had re returned from the trip around the world. Oh, okay. Hmm. So that's the one that's yeah. now up at Motep? That's the one, yeah, wow. CXU. Wow. Okay. I've probably got more flying hours than anybody <laughs> in CXU. <laughs> right. Uh, much more than Cliff, I think. Yep. Um, okay, we put all, my wife and I put it, all we had together to uh, secure the aeroplane and I started off initially at the um, terminal building at uh, Hamilton Airport yep. with a caravan as an office and um, the business got underway and it did quite well to start with. Right. So we then bought a building which we purchased second hand from Warwick Johnson who was uh, a demolition guy and it was the building was originally the uh, Lock Hill Golf Club oh, right. so we had that put up at the uh, aerodrome and uh, the business developed from there suddenly we had a big demand and we had to hire an aircraft uh, at that stage, I suppose we were growing at an aircraft of about 
an additional aircraft every three months until we got up to six aircraft and uh, the business was uh, thriving and uh, we developed, developed from there. How, how, um, what, what do you reckon was the reason why that you're expanding so quickly like that? Because that doesn't seem like it would normally happen, would it? That, that many people mm -hmm. wanted to get trained at once? Well, I think we, the, the only uh, training organisation was the Waikato Aero Club, which was really a social club, yep. not a career-oriented training business. And I think that's why we uh, did better at it, because we set out to make it a business um, for, for professional training, yep. and uh, there was a big demand in the Waikato at that stage. Right, right. So you really found a niche market there that no one had actually tapped into, really. Yeah, that's right. Interesting thing, of course, was that at that time everything in New Zealand was controlled through import licensing, and yep. it was very difficult to import aircraft or buy aircraft, and that's why we originally got Cliff Tate's first aeroplane because yep. we didn't have a business, so we couldn't prove a need, so we couldn't get the license. Right. But having hired in these aircraft um, fairly quickly, we established that there was a need for more aircraft and so we were then able to purchase some from overseas yep. and uh, put them online. Okay, okay. And right from the beginning when you first um, set up in the caravan with Cliff's aircraft, uh, you were called Eagle Airways from the start? No. Uh, oh, the company when it was originally registered was registered um, to take care of future growth that we would see in the business. So yep. we set up three companies, which was Eagle Flying Academy, which yep. was a training school, Eagle Airways, yep. which were um, with potential to move into air transport operations, yep. and Eagle Air Maintenance, which was to maintain the aircraft. Right, right, okay. Yeah. And these, um, these extra aircraft that you got uh, hired in, what sort of aircraft were they? Oh, there were all sorts of aeroplanes. There were Cessnas, there were um, Piper Cubs, there was um, the Piper Tri-Pacer. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, and um, another one, I forget the name of it now, two-seater Tri-Pacers. Right. Tri so you quite a quite a mix of um, types for people to train in. That's, that's quite an interesting sort of mix, isn't it? Well, that was... well. I, it did prove an advantage, of course, because not each aircraft is the same, yeah. and they all got their different characteristics. So it, would, it could provide a balance of um, trainings, and people learned, or students learned then, that they needed to, to adapt to a particular type of aircraft. Right, right. And obviously, okay. you were hiring in more instructors uh, as staff. Yeah. Well, in. Um, at our peak, I suppose, we had uh, five instructors, yeah. and uh, they were kept busy. Were, some were on basic training, some were on um, private pilot flight testing training, and uh, others moved into the more commercial-oriented right, type right. of training. Okay, yep. Yeah, the flying school got a reputation of um, being perhaps um, one of the best in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, for training, and it proved popular. We got people, of students from all around the country, coming to fly with us. In 1972-73, uh, 
we saw there was a demand for charter operations which were not being fulfilled. Yeah. Uh, we had a particular request from IBM New Zealand to provide an all-weather service in a, uh, for air transport okay. um, because none existed in New Zealand at that time. So with the help of IBM we went to the Air Service Licensing Authority remembering at the time that everything in the industry was licensed yes. and it was difficult to uh, get a charter, a new charter opera uh, operation going. Yep. Um, and IBM set down a certain specification for the aircraft they wanted. It had to be all-weather operation, it had to be twin-engined and capable of fairly high speed. The introduction of computers at that time in New Zealand was quite extensive and the territory for the Hamilton-based IBM company was down to New Plymouth, over to Gisborne, down to Palmerston North. It didn't service the Auckland area, but it serviced north of Auckland, so we had to get to, up to Kaitai, Wangarai and places like that. Yep, yep. So, so we applied to the Air Service Licensing Authority and uh, Although we had a lot of opposition from other uh, air transport operators, they were not capable of producing or producing the aeroplane that IBM wanted. Yeah. We proceeded and bought a Beechcraft Baron, uh, brand new from the States, and it turned out to be a superb aircraft for what we required. Okay. Okay. With the uh, transport operation operation as it grew, people could see that it was um, good for their business if they could get to other places quickly yep. from Hamilton and services to New Plymouth, Wanganui, Palmerston North were not very good and well they were provided by NAC at the time but they are all midday services yep. not early morning evening services. So we started putting on a service between Hamilton and New Plymouth, which was uh, then part of the growth projects that they had down there with the oil exploration and, uh, and the uh, methanol part plant down there. Oh, right, right, yeah. So um, we provided an air taxi service initially onto the, into those uh, places and eventually applied for air service license for a scheduled service yep. and uh, that's how we first got started in the airline business. Okay, okay. Right. It was popular because we departed early in the morning and we did a return trip uh, in the late day and uh, late evening so that anybody uh, wanting to go to Palmerston North or New Plymouth, Wanganui, were able to spend a full day there doing their business. Yes. There's a lot of synergy between the industries in Palmerston or Manawatu and the Waikato and uh, that was used a lot by the farming community. Right, right. NAC, the national carrier at the time, was set up by the government of course in 1945. Its objective was initially to provide air services throughout New Zealand. Yes and cost was not a consideration. Then they had their charter changed and uh, they had to operate at a 
reasonable return and show a profit. Right. Now, this meant that some of the aircraft were totally uneconomic for the routes they provided, and they started to withdraw from some of the secondary services. So we were sitting in a fairly good position to be able to replace those services. Right, right. The first one that happened was that NAC pulled out of the Hamil Hamilton Palmer's North route, yep. and we took that over. At that time, and for that purpose, we purchased our first turboprop aircraft, and it was the first new turboprop aircraft to come into New Zealand in a commuter role. Okay. Wow. Um, the, the Friendship, of course, was a turboprop, um, but um, nobody operate the, operated the lower capacity 19-seat aircraft right, right. as a turboprop. So we purchased the order, they purchased the Bandaranti through Airwork, where we had great difficulty getting them to take an order because they felt that nobody had ever done it before and it wasn't... Uh, going to be successful, but we shopped around the, the world and found that the Bandaranti was perhaps the most suitable type of aircraft that we could buy. Yeah. And uh, I actually had to telegram to Embraer in Brazil and say, hey, we want to buy one of your aeroplanes, but we can't get anyone to take an order. <laughs> so they sent back a telegram to Eric to say, hey, go and see this company and uh, talk it over with them. So um, they eventually came and we placed, we placed, an, uh, placed an order with them. Right. I went to um, Brazil in 1980 when the aircraft was being manufactured and uh, provided the specification that we required and the aircraft was delivered in June 1980. Okay. We um, had, a, had our own crew that flew it out from Brazil and it took, it took them uh, six days to get here, which was sort of unheard of in those days. It normally took them about six weeks <laughs> to get an aircraft but, uh, from Brazil to New Zealand. So the business with the Bandaranti prospered. We then uh, got some Piper Chieftains to supplement the uh, fleet yeah. onto the smaller routes where we we really provided the nine-seat Piper Chieftains for the New Plymouth service and the Wanganui service, and the. Bandaranti was used on a service from Auckland to Hamilton to Palmerston North in return, doing three return trips each day. Well, at the time of the purchase of the Bandaranti, I took in an additional partner who was a financial partner, and uh, he was he was primarily to provide the funding right. required for the company and uh, that assist, assisted us to get the Bandaranti. In 1984, we had some difficulties with the partnership and an opportunity came up to sell the business 
and this was a result of Air Central which was operating out of uh, Napier getting into financial difficulty and uh, NZI had quite a big investment in the aeroplanes that I, they owned right. and so NZI Insurance then purchased our company and um, the partnership then uh, dissolved of course yep. and um, I continued on with Eagle Airways um, under their ownership as general manager. Okay. okay. NZI were not really uh, in the aviation business as part of their core business, so all they wanted to do was to work out the losses which they had with Air Central. Right. We combined as Eagle Airways at that stage combined, and we started operating the Air Central routes as well. Ah, okay. The fleet then grew to um, two Bandurantes and four Piper Chieftains and the Beechcraft Baron. NZI were not interested any longer in the flying school uh, operation that we ran uh, in parallel with the airline operation. Yeah. So the flying school was uh, sold off and we then operated solely in the uh, air transport. Right. Field. In um, 1994, Air New Zealand showed an, an interest in the airline operation, operating um, as a link service to their main scheduled services. Yes. So, NZI had satisfied their needs in the aviation business by sort of working out their losses and um, sold their shareholding to Air New Zealand. Right. right. So it now continues under the name of Air New Zealand Link, operated by Eagle Airways, right. and it's still operating today as that. Right, okay, okay. And, and in that time you'd built up quite a few more Bandarantes in, in that, hadn't you? Yeah. Um, I think when... Um, yeah, once Air New Zealand took a shareholding in it, they moved into looking into more Bandarantes, so we ended up with, well, in the end, um, we had, we, had uh, we got, got rid of the Mitsubishis from Air Central, because they, they were a huge financial burden, they could never operate at profit. Right. Um, yeah, we replaced the Mitsubishis and got um, four, three more Bandarantes. So that gave us four. And started replacing the Mitsubishis with, or some of the Mitsubishis with Metroliners. Oh, yes. So in the end, we ended up with six Bandarantes and uh, six Metroliners. Right. Okay. Yeah, I remember those flying around. And yeah. yeah. Well, they were a good, uh, good aeroplane, the Metroliner. It was fast. Uh, however, they had limited air headroom and they weren't very popular. Right. But um, they were pressurised, whereas the Bandaranti wasn't pressurised, so they could operate at a 
higher altitude perhaps yeah. in more comfortable weather conditions. Right, right. Mm. Okay. Now, I eventually moved out of um, the business in 1996 and retired and um, followed other interests uh, since then. Okay. So had you been uh, still flying, were you flying the routes um, through that Eagle Air um, Eagle Airways period uh, with the early days and then when uh, NZI came on board, were you actually flying the transport routes yourself or um, were you more stuck in the office? Well, yeah, the demands for... Uh, we used to do a lot of air ambulance work as well um, where they had the uh, high-intensity high um, baby unit in, at the Waikato Hospital which serviced right out to Gisborne in New Plymouth yes. and so it was a ambulance and I ended up getting the difficult jobs because everybody else was running out of time or they were booked for other things yep. um, where we were called to do a, a, a recovery for a baby which was say born in Gisborne at three o'clock in the morning and I'd have to go out and fly to Gisborne and you didn't know what time you were going to get back because they had to stabilise the baby yeah. before we had the return journey. Yeah. So it was um, quite a difficult period. I wasn't on the regular schedule at that time so much but I used to operate when there was a shortage of pilots. So I'd, uh, still flying up to, uh, flying the schedules up to 1984. Okay. I felt that that was a bit demanding, so I pulled out of the flying with the regular schedules at that time and concentrated on the administration of the airline. Right, right, okay, okay. Did any of those um, those babies that you helped save ever come back in, um, in later life and, and say, hey, you're the guy that flew me to the hospital when I was yeah. a baby, anything like that? Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 never heard from them because they're all newborn babies, yeah, you see. Yeah, but they, they wouldn't have known. Oh, some of them were sad, really. They had their hearts born outside, the, with the, outside their body, and all sorts of uh, yeah, problems, problems with them. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, so, so what are the um, sort of interesting little um, things that happened along the way of this whole journey? You must have had a few incidents and. Um, one or two things that stand yeah. out in your mind. Well, one of the um, one of the most interesting things, I suppose, was the young fellow who had learned to fly at the uh, Waikato Flying School then, which was owned by Jack Binden. And um, he was about uh, 17, and he loved to fly, but he was in a bit of uh, trouble with the law. Yeah. And um, he was monitored by the welfare department and he was allowed to fly an hour or a month or something like that. But um, he wanted to do more than that, so he lived in Cambridge, he hopped on his push bike, he'd push bike over to Tiamu to rob a few shops and to get a bit of cash to, <laughs> to uh, take an extra flying lesson. <laughs> and on one occasion he had come over to Frankton at night and he held up a couple of shops there and uh, got a bit of money but the cops picked him up so he got put in uh, in the cells 
overnight, appeared the next morning and he was sent to Tokanui for a psychiatric report. Yeah. Well, when he returned to the police station uh, to the police station and was put in the cell, he said to one of his cellmates, he says, you watch, he said, I'm going to get out of uh, Tokanui. He said, I'll come back here. And he said, I'll um, beat this place up with an aeroplane. Okay. So that's exactly what happened. He got to Tokanui. He escaped from Tokanui, came up to Tiamudu, robbed a sports shop, got some arms, went out to the Waikato Flying School where he was learning to fly, unpicketed the aeroplane and headed over, off over town and started beating up the <laughs> police station. <laughs> the first I knew about it was when we got a report was that are they filming a crazy film in town today? And I said, not as far as I know, why? And, they, and this accountant said to me, well, he says an aeroplane's just gone past my window. <laughs> so we found out that it was, uh, which aeroplane it was. And by then the news media were pretty interested and they rushed out and they wanted to, us to follow the aeroplane. So there was a report of the aircraft flying over the Ragland area somewhere. So we hopped into an aeroplane and them with their cameras and headed out to Raglan. And the tower called us up and says, hey, this guy robbed a sports shop at Tiamudu. He's probably armed, so keep your distance from him. Yeah. So the news media were happy to keep the distance because they knew we had more gas than he did. <laughs> so <laughs> at least wanted to get, get the aeroplane going down. Right. However, as it transpired, the aircraft at Raglan was one from Auckland that was doing some aerial photography. Oh. So we were on a wild goose chase there. Right. Right. And he had headed off towards Napier and uh, eventually landed, landed in a paddock just as he was running out of fuel um, in Napier. Uh, uh, he landed the paddock and the police picked him up on the Napier streets later in the day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the plane was safe? Yeah, the plane was quite good. He was quite a competent pilot. Right, right. Actually. Wow. So when was that? That was in the 60s, was it? Or? Um, no, that would have been uh, 1973, 74, I would think. Okay, so mm -hmm. your friend who rang you and said that the plane had just gone past your window, there weren't many high-rises in Hamilton then, so it must have been no. pretty low. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, most people in Hamilton can still recall that. I'm sure that your mother... Would and yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's one I hadn't heard before, but that's an interesting story. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I do remember um, when I was a kid. I remember seeing on the front page of the Waikato Times there was a great photo of one of the Bandarantes landing wheels up, or with one wheel up. Was it? Oh yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember that incident? Um, would have been about 80, 86 or so. Yeah, we had two instances with um, Bandarantes landing with wheels up. Um, one is still a mystery to this day. Um, the aircraft was going into Palmerston North, and uh, when they put the wheels down, uh, put the undercarriage down, one of the wheels was missing. Oh. And um, so the landing itself was made with the wheels up because that was a better way to land it than, rather than having a, a undercarriage leg hanging down with no wheel on it. Yes. They eventually located the wheel in, the, uh, in a uh, paddock on the approach to the aerodrome 
and the locking bolt was still, uh, locking nut was still in place. Okay. And uh, we don't really know. That's what weird, happened. isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. The second one was after a maintenance check late at night in Hamilton. One of the engineers left a torch in the undercarriage well, and it was one of those oh, black torches, I forget the name, especially strong ones. Yes. And the wheel could go up, but when it came down, it jammed on it. Oh, right. So it made a landing wheels up in Auckland, um, and uh, there was no problem. Right, mm. right. Yeah. So okay. all aircraft have to, when the test flying, have to be have to show that they can land with wheels up as part of their certification. Right, to right. Too much damage. Damages the engines, of course, and the props yes. and a few things like that. But yes. some of them, well, one of the passengers in Palms North when it landed said it was the best landing they'd ever experienced <laughs> in their aeroplane. <laughs> and I also remember one of the passengers, they had a big bottle of champagne that they bought from an overseas trip. And he says, when we land, uh, I'm going to crack this bottle of champagne. And she, I thought that wasn't be, well, was not a good idea. I would have done it before that. <laughs> landed with the wheels up. <laughs> so, other than those two uh, incidents, you had a pretty good safety record, didn't you? Really? Yeah. Well, we did. There were, we had a uh, aircraft which was not our aircraft, and it was hired in from Kiwi West, which was involved in a. Um, an accident uh, off the Hamilton Airport. Um, we was like taking, you know, having a taxi to fill in where we had a shortage of aeroplanes. Um, we did not control their, their flying standards or anything like that. Um, we took the civil aviation um, testing and approvals as part of our thing, but it was it was uh, an accident which should never have happened, okay. but it did. Right. Anyone hurt? Yeah, there were six people killed. Oh, is that right? Oh, and I didn't even Ki know about that. Kiwi West was was the operator. Okay. That was actually at the airport? Just off the airport here on, um, not Rukahai Road, but... Uh, you go down Rooka High Road actually and turn left toward Nahanapuri. Oh, yep, yep, mm. yep. Oh, right, okay. And I'm just on the road there. And oh, gosh, that's awful. I'm yeah, sorry, I didn't well, know about that one. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty hard to take, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, how many staff members did you end up with? Um, well, by the time I left in. Um, 1996, we had 250 staff. Wow. Yep, and uh, turning over about a million a week. So. Wow, oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a pretty good size small airline, isn't it? Really? Oh yeah, it's, it's quite big. It's still operating today. Of yeah, course. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got now all Beechcraft. They've replaced the Metros and the Bandurantis. Yeah. ERU, the first Bandurante that we got from. Um, Brazil was the highest hour Bandurante in the, air, in the world yep. and it ran out of uh, airframe cycles at um, 47,000 hours and it couldn't, I have to check on that, I'm not sure about 47,000 hours, um, but anyway the airframe was only 
uh, tested under manufacturer to the, the life and that life and uh, because they they sort of run their race by then they uh, they weren't prepared to go through the test to extend the life on the, the airframe. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and that's the one that's um, now preserved at the Tauwari Museum, isn't it? I think. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Yeah. Mm. So you've got a couple of uh, of your early aircraft actually in museums, which is quite good, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry. I haven't, is it still at Tawari now? Yeah, I believe it is still there. He tried right. to sell it for a while. Uh, Andy yeah. was trying to sell it, but right. um, no, I think it's still there. Oh, yeah. I must right. ask him next time I see him. I see him quite often. So. Right. Um, oh, it must have been quite an interesting um, uh, place to work at uh, Hamilton Airport with all the different um, businesses going on around there with James Aviation back in the early days and, um, you know, the... Uh, the other top dressing operations there, like Robinsons and that. There must have been a quite a yeah. neat little community there. Yeah, it was um, yeah, quite a close knit community, and you knew everybody on the airfield in yeah. those days. Yeah. yeah, I remember when, uh, well, when I was working at the Aero Club at this this stage, that the the James were aviation were having a bit of trouble with one of their aircraft. Which were 182s, which were based at Rotorua on scenic flights, right. and um, pilots were complaining of headaches, and they <coughs> thought there was some leakage in the uh, in the exhaust, letting fumes into the yeah. cockpit. So the one engineer and a pilot took off from the airport and headed off with a CO2 carbon monoxide tester, yeah. and um, they shut all the windows and closed all the vents and opened the, the uh, hot air for the cabin warming yep. uh, wide open, let it go for a few minutes, half a minute or so, and then used the tester and it immediately turned black. <laughs> <laughs> so they opened all the windows again, but by then they were badly affected by the, the um, carbon monoxide. Yep. And they headed back to the aerodrome and all they, the pilot was capable of saying was, uh, I'm coming in, I'm coming in. So he landed on the grass in front of Robertson's hangar, yeah. which was a short grass runway there. <laughs> and by then they were, they, they were in pretty sick condition. And the aircraft ground looped. And of course the, the uh, engineer and the pilot threw open the door and jumped, fell out of the aeroplane. <laughs> And Robertson's air, uh, Robertson's staff were outside the hammer, uh, the hangar, having a look at it. Uh, you know, looking at uh, having morning tea. I think they were. And yep. They said, "Oh, here's uh, one of James' aircraft coming in. The pilots are drunk again. <laughs> they did, no, did nothing to help them. However, the control tower knew something was wrong. And yeah. The fire attendant was there fairly quickly. Right, right." <laughs> <laughs> I guess the next time you go up to do that sort of test, you'd take oxygen with you. That'd oh. be the logical thing, wouldn't it? Oh. <laughs> yeah, there was a bad leak. I think mm. they, should, they yeah. should have had a look first behind them before they yeah. tested it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right. Um, but quite often you get a bit of conflict between engineers and pilots who's the, 
for the engineers think the pilots are imagining things and yeah. uh, rather go and check them out first. Um, so when, yeah. um, now you said that when NZI took over um, the company they stopped the flying school but the, did uh, Eagle Maintenance carry on as well uh, or did they? Uh, yeah, Eagle Maintenance have always um, since Eagle Maintenance really was not um, put into operation or as a company, although it was a, you know, registered at the time that the flying school was, we didn't use that facility until we got the Bandaranti, and that's when we started our own engineering right. organisation. Right, I got you, yep, yep. So Just as, you know, we had the flying school operating, and yep. but we still had the company for the airline registered. Yeah. Um, it was just the way, the way they do it, I suppose. They make provision for the future right. when they register the company. So then we used the airline operation when we started that and the yep. engineering when we started that. Right. So it was sort of a place saver up until when you were ready to start yeah, the business. That's yeah. right. Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. Um, and eventually, how, how many aircraft... By the time that you retired, how many aircraft were on strength? How many? Um um, we had 15 aircraft online at, at the time, which okay. were only metros and bandarantes. Right, right. So you were going um, quite, you know, quite far distances by then, weren't you? You were going all over North Island. Oh yeah. Um, we operated from the, the, at that time from Kaitaia down to um, Nelson and. When do we go? No, no. Yeah, we didn't go into Blenheim until a bit later. And only when Air New Zealand took it over right. did they start moving further down the South Island. Right. But now they operate really from uh, Kaitara in the north to, well, they were operating into Invercargill at one stage. Oh, right, okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Uh, and you you gave up the um, scheduled flying, um, as you said, to to concentrate on the the business side. But did you carry on doing any recreational flying just for your own benefit? Uh, didn't really continue. No, the only way I could really give it up was to um, not renew my license. Right. Right. As long as you had a license, there was always something to do in the <laughs> flying business. Right. Okay. So uh, um, I dropped my commercial licences and in actual fact it was very expensive to maintain them because I was an A category instructor and approved for all crew testing and um, um, could, you know, still, still train instructors and all that sort of thing too. Yeah. So it was, could be a very busy life. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And with the airline, where were you getting the pilots from? Were they mainly from flying schools, or were you taking them from the Air Force, or um, what, from what was the sort of pre predominant place they were coming into the Eagle Airways? Well, most of them came came as uh, we insisted on a minimum of two thousand hours pilot and command right. um, experience before they operated on the schedules. That came down a bit later on because. Um, we got uh, the co-pilots were co or pilot, 
people who came in yeah. were, were trained as co-pilots probably for two years before they have an opportunity to uh, get to the command stage. Right, right. But, um, yeah, I think in any operation like that, um, you've got to to uh, look at the decision time. The pilots have to make, the captain of the aircraft has to make the decision, so therefore he needs that background of 2,000, a minimum of 2,000 hours anyway, right. making decisions rather than sitting as a co-pilot where the captain's making the decision yeah. and uh, he doesn't have to do that. So yeah. it's decision time that, that you need for um, captaincy. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so I guess most of them were instructors, I guess. Yep. A lot of them were charter charter pilots. Yep. Some were from the from the air force. Okay. Um, so it's quite a, a wide sort of uh, entry stream, really, isn't it? Yeah. But they're, they're mm -hmm. all experienced pilots. So. Yeah. 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 Now the now the basic training is more advanced with. Um, simulators and all that sort of thing and you yeah. can take in co-pilots with perhaps less experience but the way we were going we needed the co-pilots to move into captaincies fairly quickly you see right, right. and of course there's always a turnout quite a, a turnover in the commuter business that the pilots will stay with a commuter airline for say two or three years and then they'll move on to the major airlines as opportunities are available there so. True, yeah. Mm. And I guess now with the Air New Zealand link up, then the, the, the natural progression is to move on to the bigger aircraft within Air New Zealand. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Mm. All right. It's quite an ideal arrangement at the moment because the Air New Zealand are operating um, the Eagle aircraft in, in the 20 seaters and the ATRs in the next seater size yeah. in the Boeings for the. Uh, bigger ones so right, right. they can provide the capacity to suit the market right. on each individual route on each individual day for that matter. Right, right. Mm. Were you um, disappointed when Air New Zealand bought into the um, airline or were you happy that they, because they had originally been your competition hadn't they really? Yeah they had been yeah, yeah. and quite savage competition. Yeah. Um, not, not, uh, no not really I think that's at the end of the day, if you're growing, the, uh, the requirement in the airline business for uh, funding is just uh, huge, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, you see, as an individual, for instance, when they replace um, the Bandarantes and the Metros with the um, Beechcraft, yeah. I think the purchase order was something like 54 million. Mm -hmm. Wow. So. Uh, That's not easy for a small business, no, is it? No. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I, I can see yeah. the benefits of uh, yeah. having that back in you. Yeah, you've got to have uh, the you know, company with a large financial support. Yeah, yeah. Right, mm. okay. Yeah. Mm. Uh, is there any sort of um, anything else that you can think of that you'd like to... I'm sure there are dozens of things. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'd have to think about them, Dave. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well... Uh, I don't think you got a very good story there, to be honest. It's too fragmented and trying to do the timeline while I'm giving you the story. It yeah. hasn't worked out. Well, exactly, and trying to piece together, what, 40 years or something, isn't it, yeah. really? So, 
I, I can understand the the difficulty in trying to remember which went where and and that. But uh, um, as far as for me, as someone listening to it, and I think the the other listeners who listen to this, it's been very interesting. So yeah. I, I thank you very much for yeah. that. It's been great. Okay. Have you um, have you stayed in touch with um, aviation in other ways um, since your retirement? Do, do you? Oh yeah, I regularly go to the airport and go yeah. out to the, the hangar, and uh, but uh, there's not many people left there now. Are there? Yeah. there when I left, um, only really two or three, uh, or three or four. Um, most of them retired as well. Right. right. <laughs> that actually was one. Moved on. There was one thing I was going to ask you. Um, who were the real characters that you worked with over the years? The people who stand out and. Um, you know, did you have any um, really interesting type of people in the in the airline, or, or um, you know, people who had had amazing careers before they joined your airline, or anything like that? Yeah, I have to think about that. Um, yeah. Well, we had we've had some really um, good people work for us, um, very loyal, hard working. Um, but you know, it's the sort of industry you either enjoy being in it yeah. or you don't. We were never um, uh, big payers because there's the, the potential earning capacity of the aircraft were not uh, not great. Yeah. Um, so we we couldn't pay big money. So it was used as a stepping stone. But we had uh, many people stay with us for ten or fifteen years, okay. which is uh, still pretty good. Yeah. But that's because they enjoyed it, and it just fitted them. And a lot of them, of course, didn't really want to get onto the bigger aeroplanes. Right, right. But, uh, it was much more restrictive. Right. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, yeah, we've had we've had a few characters, but uh, trying to put it into. Words for a story, Martin. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I guess um, we'll probably leave it at that, Malcolm. Thank yeah. you very much indeed. Do you like a cup of tea or oh, coffee? Yeah, good, thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.